I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to Stephanie Waterman. Welcome, Stephanie, to the podcast. Uh, now, you are a physical oceanographer. Um, what is a physical oceanographer? <laughs> uh, a physical oceanographer is somebody who studies the physics of the ocean circulation and how the ocean plays its role in the Earth system. Okay, excellent. Um, and what affects the physics of the ocean? How does the ocean have physics? <laughs> Yeah, sure. Well, the ocean is moving. So the ocean, we have ocean circulation. And so we can think about the physics, the forces that move the ocean around. We can think about things like the heat budget of the ocean. So how it moves heat around to different places. We can think about it transporting other things we care about, like carbon and nutrients. And so a lot of ocean physics is understanding ocean motion, but it's also understanding kind of the thermodynamics of uh, the implications of that motion too. I'm curious how you got into this field. What's your professional background? Where did you go to school? Uh, what kind of experience did you have? Yes. Yeah, so like many physical oceanographers, I did not start as a physical oceanographer. I found it later. And that's quite typical, I would say, um, for my generation of physical oceanographers, for at least. Um, I started uh, life as a physics, an engineering physics student at the undergraduate level. Um, and uh, I guess uh, my love affair with physics sort of started to wane when we started talking a lot more about quantum physics and the types of physics that I had trouble kind of experiencing and feeling and seeing. Um, and so uh, I started to look for some other applications. I'd always really liked fluid mechanics. Um, and so I looked for applications of that. Um, I didn't go straight to oceanography. I did a master's in aeronautical engineering first, which was an interesting application of fluid mechanics. Um, and there are very cool applications there. Um, but I think the problem for me there was some of the applications of that fluid mechanics didn't um, motivate me um, sufficiently. Uh, especially I was doing my master's in Southern California. There were a lot of military applications of the types of work that we were thinking. And it just, um, yeah, I, it wasn't for me. And I had a bit of a crisis for a while and eventually um, found physical oceanography, mostly because of a, um, an undergraduate summer position I had with a physical oceanographer who had so much fun just trying to understand the processes going on in the ocean. And he said to me at the time, you know, you should consider a career in physical oceanographer. Um, and it took me a few, many years, actually, to take that advice. But eventually I did. Wonderful. OK, that's not at all what I thought. I thought um, I just figured all physical oceanographers were uh, marine biologists who fell into <laughs> the, the physics. Yeah, that is interesting. That's a common perception. And when I tell people in my day to day life that I'm an oceanographer, inevitably, usually I get questions related to marine biology um, first. Um, and that is, 
It is an interesting distinction. Uh, I, I work nowadays, the motivations to get in the field, I think have changed a lot with the growing awareness of uh, the importance of understanding our Earth system and how we're impacting it. And so I get a lot of interest from students who have physics backgrounds and they want to apply this physics to these very important societal questions. Um, and so, um, yeah, I think it's important um, to know that that physics and, and quantitative science is really important to attacking these questions about ocean circulation, as well as understanding life in the ocean that, that most people think about first. And um, it's not a connection that I, I would logically or I would make um, intuitively, but yeah, connecting the atmosphere to the ocean uh, and being an aeronautics um, student definitely makes sense now that I think about it, uh, that it would lead you to oceanography. Circuitous route, as, as people say. I'm curious, uh, looking back at your career, have, what kinds of discoveries have you made that you're most proud of? Mm, discovery is a, is a big, big word. I think, <laughs> I often think of our work as, as incremental. So we do studies and we make incremental steps in our understanding. Um, if I think back over the last couple of years, there are a few of those studies that I guess I'm kind of particularly excited about. Uh, one example uh, is, uh, so big picture, one of the things we are working on is how the ocean mixes in the Arctic Ocean environment in particular. So that's a really unique um, physical environment. And so understanding how the ocean mixing mixes there is one of uh, kind of the guiding questions of our group. And uh, recently we did a, a study that I was really excited about. We um, we used data that had been collected kind of by a fleet of um, robots that have been sampling the interior of the Arctic Ocean for the last 20 years or so. And so this is a pretty amazing data set in the sense that uh, these instruments have sampled uh, really large spatial scales all across the Arctic basins. And they've also been doing so for quite a long time. So 20 years is uh, a long enough time series where we can start to look for trends, say, associated with climate change and stuff like that. Uh, and so we use this data set to first make uh, a map of what we think the ocean mixing rate is subsurface uh, on a pan-Arctic scale. And so this map was was, was unique. It was the first pan-Arctic scale one at that level of detail. So that was really exciting. And we also were able, with these calculations, to look at how the mixing rate had changed over uh, the time span of 20 years. And we were able to uh, look for changes that we hypothesized should be there, um, say associated with declining sea ice and, and other changes that have been happening. And we were able to see uh, changes that, that supported some of our hypothesis. So it was a very uh, exciting study. So that's one example. Um, another example is uh, uh, we focus on autonomous ocean observations. So we use these kind of marine robots essentially to make observations. And we've been working really hard uh, to kind of increase our capacity to do that. Uh, and our group in particular puts a specialized turbulence sensor uh, on these robots to make um, really rare observations of ocean turbulence and ocean mixing at the really smallest scales. And so we've deployed uh, our, our robot, we call him Mike affectionately, uh, to we've deployed him off all three of Canada's coasts. Um, and in 2015, we um, deployed him in the Canada basin of the Arctic Ocean, and we collected a really unique uh, mixing data set uh, uh, using this platform that had never um, had never been collected. A data set of that form had never been collected in this part of the world before. So that was also super exciting. That's really cool. Uh, we always think about um, flying drones, but never about um, aquatic ones. Can you describe Mike for me? 
Yeah, sure. So um, Mike is a class of autonomous ocean uh, observing platforms called an ocean glider. And how he works is uh, he moves himself through the water column by changing his buoyancy. So he makes himself heavier and he sinks down and he makes himself lighter and he, and he um, rises up in the water column basically by moving oil in and out of his um, pressure case. And then we stick wing, fixed wings on him. So he's a little torpedo shaped thing. And if you stick fixed wings on that, you translate a component of that vertical motion into horizontal motion. So Mike, by going up and down in the water column with his wings, now will transact sort of on a seesaw-like trajectory through the water column. And we can put lots of different sensors on him so that he can measure properties like temperature and salinity and dissolved oxygen. And he collects this data as he sort of seesaws through the water column. Uh, where is he right now? He's in the water right now. He's off the coast. Uh, he's off the BC Central Coast um, doing a transect that's taking him from the coast uh, to the shelf break and just beyond the shelf break and back. Uh, and what we're really interested there in is uh, water that comes from the deep Pacific comes on to the shelf and eventually will make it to the coastal ocean on BC's coast. Um, and we're really interested in the processes that modify the properties of that water uh, in that uh, transit from the deep ocean to the, to the coast. I'm also curious, why the name Mike and not why, why not um, Drony McDroneface? <laughs> Yes, yeah, or Bodie McBoatface, maybe you're referencing, which is another famous autonomous observing platform out there. Yeah, so Mike actually comes from this specialized turbulence sensor that is strapped to him and that makes him quite unique. Um, that turbulence sensor measures something we call microstructure. So that's the scale of the variations that we're measuring. So he, he has a microstructure sensor on him that the, um, that's called a micro rider. So it rides on the glider. So his full name is actually Mike underscore row rider. But we, um, yeah, we uh, informally refer to him as Mike. And people do comment about how we've um, kind of personalized him. And I do think it reflects the very close relationship we have with this instrument uh, when he's in the water. We care about him deeply and are very committed to his health and well-being. And so I think by personifying him a little bit, that does speak a little bit to the closeness of our relationship. I think that's fair. That, that's a good name now that you've explained it. <laughs> One thing I've really enjoyed about this interview series is hearing about uh, field stories. Um, I've never gone to the field, but apparently the fields is, is this magical place where crazy stuff happens all the time. Uh, do you get out into the field very often? And do you have any fun field uh, stories you'd care to share? Yeah, I, I uh, there was a time in my career when I went to sea. We say like going to the field for us is we go to sea. I went to sea quite frequently as a, a PhD student and as a, a postdoctoral researcher. Um, yeah, I've done work in the North Pacific and the North Atlantic and a lot of work in the Southern Ocean as a postdoc. I probably spent 60 days a year for a few years on a research vessel in the Southern Ocean. So there's lots of stories from then. And then interestingly, since coming to UBC, I've kind of transitioned um, for a few different reasons to focusing on sending Mike the robot to see for me. But there are also field-like experiences that one has when one is with Mike via your satellite connection. 
Uh, there's lots of different stories. I could tell one about my very first time going on a research vessel as a PhD student. Um, and we were deploying, it was to the North Pacific to study a big current there called the Curcio, which is the equivalent of the Gulf Stream in the Pacific Ocean. And we were deploying uh, what we call moorings in this very strong current. Um, and a mooring is basically a big anchor with a wire and then uh, buoyancy attached to that wire. So the wire sticks uh, up, stands up in the water column. And then you can put different uh, instruments strung up and down that, that wire that will make um, time series measurements of the water properties that are flowing past this, this mooring. And so we were deploying these moorings uh, in the North, uh, Northwest Pacific in, you know, 5,000 meters of wire. So this is a huge operation. You put these huge anchors down with a huge splash with a crane, and then you pan out five kilometers of wire with these instruments strung along the wire to deploy them. And I was a, a very green and young graduate student, and my job uh, was to stand at the edge of the, the, uh, the, after the shift as the instruments were going down. And I had two jobs. I had to record the serial number of the instrument as they were passing by and going into the water. And I also had to check that each shackle, which is like a little hook uh, that attaches the instrument to the wire, was there and done up and like secured with a, with a zip tie. So those were my two jobs and I did them very diligently. And then uh, about three days after we had deployed one of these moorings, we got a signal uh, that essentially the mooring had broken. So the mooring had broken and the float had come to the surface and started to talk to the satellites. And that's how we knew um, something was amiss. And um, so we immediately turned around to go and see what had happened. And it took us three days to steam back to the location of this mooring. And those three days I was in, just felt ill. Cause I'm like, what if this mooring has come apart because I didn't, <laughs> there wasn't, the shackle wasn't done correctly. And we're going to find this mooring at the surface and everyone's going to realize that the reason it's all broken is because of a, of a missed shackle. But in the end, that wasn't the case. The actual line was faulty and had broken. But for those three days, I did feel rather ill as we were going back thinking I might be responsible for this. So that's that's one story. I probably should tell a story about the glider too. Could I could I do that? Oh absolutely. <laughs> so a more recent story about Mike the glider. So I feel like we're using these glider technologies like We've been doing it for now, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, but there's still, I feel like it's still kind of beta phase. You know, we're still trying to do more and more each time. We're strapping more and more instruments onto them, pushing the boundaries. And so things always, like, I feel like always there's lots of hiccups and things to deal with, with almost every deployment. And a good example, in 2019, it was our first time deploying the gliders off the BC Central Coast. And we had a small fleet of them. We had three of them, Mike and two, two others. And we deployed them and we had a team of people who were kind of monitoring them and, and working with them. And so it had a real nice kind of team atmosphere and, and a lot of the feeling of being at sea um, that uh, a more traditional uh, experience does. But so we put the three in the water and the other two behave beautifully and do their dives and climbs and go where they're told to go and everything is fine. But Mike had a lot, was really not behaving very well. His dives and climbs were not looking like they were supposed to. We would try to steer him and he wouldn't go where we wanted him to go. And 
it was just sort of like, you know, two weeks of every day we were fighting with him, not really understanding why he wasn't um, performing as we expected. And the contrast to how well the other two were doing was very stark. And um, eventually there was a time where he didn't come up for his surfacing, which always sometimes does happen. And we always makes us very nervous. And it was lots of stress and, and emergency messages and watching him through the night. But uh, eventually when we did recover him, we realized that the reason he was having so much trouble is on deployment, this turbulence sensor, which we stick on the top of him, we had flooded the nose cone of that particular instrument. So he was flying with this huge bucket full of water on his top, which is not how he's designed to fly. And so all our problems with diving and climbing and steering him were because he was carrying around this water the whole time. And so we were very lucky. We we're happy to get him back. But it was, yeah, these two weeks where every, the other, other, we call them glider pilots, but the other pilots were like kicking back and just on clockwork, their gliders were checking in and everything was fine. And we were pulling our hair out like every day for two weeks before he came back. <laughs> It's funny, we have these uh, robots and drones and we always think of them as being so rational and, and impartial, but uh, it sounds like Mike was acting more like a teenager at that point. <laughs> yes, I was going to say, yes, not always listening. You know, I told you to go here. Why are you popping up over here? <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, that does sound stressful. I wouldn't want to lose Mike in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> no, no, no. You, that, that is, I think, you know, one of the, the newer stresses of being a PI on the project, as opposed to, say, a student or a postdoc, is there is a, an increased responsibility for the, for, for the well-being of the people, first and foremost, and then also of the equipment, secondly. And, and that responsibility does weigh heavier. You don't realize it, I think, when you're a student, uh, what that feels like until you're, yeah, you're there. Now, I'm curious, why do you do this? Uh, how is why is your research important to the world? Ooh, that's a that's a big <laughs> that's a big question. Those are two different questions, right? Why do I do it, and why is it important to the world, <laughs> right? True. <laughs> so, so maybe I'll start with the why I do it first. That's probably no, it's not easier. But the anyway, start with that one first, and and. You know, thinking about this interview uh, did make me reflect a little bit on how the motivations have changed a lot over the course of my career, which is sort of 20 years. Yeah, 20 years now, I guess. When I started as a physical oceanographer, as a PhD student, 2003, um, the, the physical oceanography was uh, a lot about exploration and adventure and kind of taking... Um, these research vessels to far-flung, awe-inspiring places and, and, and looking at places in the ocean that had never been looked at before and looking at things that had never been looked before. And so it had a very kind of exploratory, adventurous kind of flavor. And that's one thing that really attracted me to the field at the time. I would say that things have changed a lot in the 20, last 20 years as we've become increasingly kind of aware and motivated by the importance of understanding how these earth systems um, function and how humans are impacting them and how we should expect them to function in the future. And so there's been this kind of change in motivation about why we're doing what we're doing and what kind of questions we're asking and why. And so, um, 
Yeah, I, I, I think it's kind of interesting because that's not what brought me into the field initially. But when I stand here now, I think of it as a very important reason about why we're doing what we're doing. And so that maybe feeds into why is it important to the world? I think, I think it's important for a few different reasons. I think it's first important to recognize that this is still like fundamental science research. So we're trying to understand the mixing rates that are happening, the mechanisms that drive those how those mixing rates impact things like how the ocean transports heat, things like those kind of questions. So very base, basic research questions. But that basic understanding of sort of how the ocean works and how it plays its role in the larger kind of Earth system is actually, I think, pretty important in the current era when we're trying to understand the services that these systems provide to us in the climate system, as we're trying to understand how these systems are changing and why they're changing and what the implications of change are, and specifically the implications of, of change on the services that, that these systems are providing to us. Um, and also, you know, thinking about the important need to understand how we're going to adapt to future climate changes and hopefully mitigate some of those changes. And so that basic understanding, like I think we're still at a level where basic understanding is important for all those questions. So that's one reason it's important. Another reason is that, that our particular um, research about ocean mixing, which is like very small scale and why do you care about this very small scale process is important, is that it turns out when we, so people have heard reference to climate models that we use to make project predictions about what will happen under different scenarios in the future. These models have numerical models of how the ocean works and how the atmosphere works and how they interact with, with the land system and all these kind of things. And these models of how the ocean work, these numerical models of how the ocean work is very sensitive in important ways to how you prescribe the ocean mixing rate. And so um, a big motivation for better understanding ocean mixing uh, is so that we can make more robust models uh, or system models, climate models as tools that we can use to navigate um, our decisions coming up. So that's another important reason. And then Increasingly, too, I, I sound a bit like an activist, but I, I am increasingly motivated about, about the need to kind of engage lots of different people of all different types um, about the importance of the Earth system and to, to kind of inspire them by it and to get them engaged about the need to do a better job at, at being stewards of the Earth system. And so, you know, increasingly, and this is sort of new, but I think of an increasing role of not just producing scientific outcomes that will uh, advance the science in my field, but also to engage a broader uh, population uh, so that um, we can attack these societal problems related to um, environmental stewardship. Um, I'm, I'm going to start with what you were talking about in the beginning about how you, you um, were interested in the exploration aspect. And... Um, I'm always surprised with how little we understand or understood about the ocean for so long. Um, I mean, we knew that they were there and we understood how they function, but on a very superficial level, uh, just on the surface. And I forget who said the quote that we we know mo more about the surface of Mars than we do about our own oceans. Um, and so it, it's really interesting that this huge biosphere um, or environment in our planet, um, we're starting off we're still creating a baseline as it's undergoing this massive change. 
uh, and it's, um, I always understand atmospheric science like this, but I, I think it applies to oceanography too. What you're doing is basically putting together a model of a very intricate clock as the gears and cogs are cha changing shape on you and you're still trying to figure out the, the, the final picture. <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that very, um, yes. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about when we motivate our research, we talk a lot about establishing the baseline, but then also understanding change and those things are happening at the same time. And so there's really interesting um, challenges associated with that. I guess I'll just, you know, Observing Mars is also very challenging, so I don't want to <laughs> belittle the challenges associated with that and the amazing work that people do to overcome those challenging challenges. But, uh, you know, observing the ocean, there are a lot of real challenges, you know, uh, a really basic one that maybe people don't think about is that we can send electromagnetic radiation through the atmosphere. And so that lets, for example, the satellites talk to us down here and to make measurements of the, of the atmospheric air column on the way down and send that information. But we can't pass EM radiation through water. And so that is a huge difference about how it has really fundamental uh, uh, implications for the means we have available to us to communicate and send information through the water and to make measurements and send that information back. And so, um, so that's like, I think one reason that the oceans are more challenging, the pressure, like, again, I send an instrument down to a thousand meters. It's got, you know, atmospheres of it, pressure weighing on it. You have the engineering associated with making these instruments, uh, is also challenging. And I mean, it, it's sad that we don't know as much as we should know about the oceans, but it's also, um, kind of encouraging because I remember when I was little uh, thinking about do I want to go into this field or that field and then I'd think well all the discoveries have been made and there's there are only small discoveries for, left for me to make um, there's still a lot of big discoveries for us to make with the oceans yeah no it is it is a young field in that sense you know uh, compared to fluid just straight up fluid mechanics for example people have been thinking them for that for hundreds of years and we're still making incremental progress but I think that's what attracts me a little bit to observational oceanography in particular, because uh, sometimes when I motivate the importance of observations, I, I have this little story that I tell that every time we make basically a, a fundamental advance in our ability to observe the ocean, for example, we invent some new technology that lets us observe and see the ocean in a new way. Uh, every time we've done that, on average, say once every decade for the last 50 years, we result in a really fundamental step change understanding about the complexity uh, of how the ocean is working. And so I feel like we haven't converged yet on that understanding because we still, every time we change the, the way we're looking at it, we learn something new. So it suggests that we're not yet at the kind of... Um, yeah, the converged description of how it works. And so that's, that's very exciting. So and it motivates a lot of, you know, excitement about instrument development, these autonomous platforms, it's sort of my, my bread and butter, but I, you know, I think they're really exciting. And if we think about in the last 20 years, we've seeded the oceans with these floats that go up and down and send the data up, and we've mapped things on global scales, like these views of the ocean, we are very new, like just the last few decades. Um, and so it's, it is very exciting, I think. It's not just a global bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's a bit more complicated than that. I'm curious. Um, there seem to be a lot of things that you really love about your work, but what's your favorite part or the most exciting part about your work? And I'm sure it's changed over uh, your career too. Yeah, it has changed over time. 
I would say a more updated uh, answer to that is that the people that I get to work with, I would say that I feel very privileged to work in a field, in an environment where I work with highly motivated, highly skilled, highly talented into individuals, which I think is really a, a, a privilege that one should not take for granted. And so, um, so the students and my colleagues that I work with, I feel very privileged um, to have that opportunity. So that's one thing. And, you know, still that exploration kind of drive, like the fieldwork uh, for all its ups and downs, and it's it is more stressful now for me than it was when I was younger. But um, like that is also, I think, a highlight. It's it's exciting. It's uh, you're in it kind of as a team. Um, uh, it's very you get to go to awe inspiring places or try to understand awe inspiring places. So that is also uh, yeah pretty engaging. Where's your favorite place to have done field work? Well, I must admit, um, be having the opportunity to work in the Southern Ocean around Antarctica as a postdoc, that's really what drew me a lot to that position, uh, was, was quite a highlight. That's a part of the world that many people don't get the opportunity to go and uh, see. Um, and I felt pretty privileged to um, be able to um, travel there and, and try to study that environment. School. I haven't been to the Arctic yet. We've done so much as a place I'd really like to go. We've done so much work there if, uh, about the Arctic in the last five years. And, and some of my students uh, have had the opportunity to go, but I have yet to been. So I, I would like to go there and then maybe I'll replace my answer. Wonderful. Yeah, that does sound absolutely amazing. <laughs> now, I have to ask the inverse question. What's the worst or the most challenging part of, of your work? Again, there are many answers to that question. Like I could just say it's the same. Field work is the most challenging aspect, you know, because of all the challenges involved with mounting these campaigns, funding these campaigns, mounting these campaigns, working with this instrumentation, trying to push the boundaries. So that's one aspect. Um, another challenge, uh, I in my current role as, as a, a professor in EOS or Earth Atmosphere, at UBC. Um, I, I find I wear many hats and have many responsibilities and they're quite diverse. And so just balancing those um, is a challenge. I find that sometimes overwhelming. Um, and so that is a challenge, the kind of multifaceted and demanding nature of th these kind of positions. And I think the third thing I would say is this, um, kind of burden of responsibility, I feel increasingly as an environmental science scientist in this current era where society is really grappling with coming to grips with the scales of the challenges uh, and what we should do about them. I, I feel like I should be contributing to this very big and important problem, but sometimes it's hard to know how to contribute. Um, and so that kind of burden and the kind of you know, the climate anxiety type feelings that many people in my field um, experience and deal with uh, are, are, are challenges. Yeah, I guess uh, understanding the immensity of the problem is, um, is a double-edged sword because uh, you see just how big it is and how challenging it is. Um, but you've spent so much effort understanding it uh, that, you know, you're only one person. <laughs> yes, it is true. It is a double-edged sword. And I think too, you know, I feel like people have been talking about this problem with increasingly loud voices for many decades now. And, um, you know, 
Uh, I'm not diminishing the challenges of addressing these problems. They're, they're huge. But it is sometimes frustrating to, to see things just kind of get worse with time without, um, yeah, effective response. There are only so many superlatives <laughs> to describe it. <laughs> and then as for field research, it seems like, or it sounds like uh, field work is literally um, a roller coaster up and down. <laughs> Either it's Mike going up and down or it's your your emotions. <laughs> yes, it's true. Yes, I it is very, uh, I'm very emotionally invested, I guess, in that experience. <laughs> um, I'm curious, do you identify as belong to any underrepresented uh, communities um, in uh, physical oceanography? And do you feel like that's uh, impacted your career in any way or your studies? Yeah, that's an important question. So um, identify as female and certainly um, women are underrepresented in the physical sciences and physical oceanography is no exception uh, there. And that certainly has... Um, impacted my experience as a student and as a, a researcher and as a faculty member. Um, I think I, I now with increased conversations about equity, diversion and inclusion and about um, kind of the impacts of being underrepresented, I see those experiences now for my current position kind of differently. And I now, at the time I didn't acknowledge this, but I think some of my confidence, you know, has been impacted um, by the, the fact that maybe I was a, um, a minority group. I think the nate of how I collaborate with people, I think also I've developed different strategies um, if, if uh, depending on kind of the demographics of the group that I'm working with. So I definitely think it does had had an impact. Um, I would also say that I've felt quite supported. I, I, I've had the benefit of being involved in a number of different groups that have supported me as a woman in science and as a, a physical oceanographer in particular. There's a wonderful group. Uh, they call themselves Empower. So it's mentoring physical oceanography women to increase retention. So very domain specific. Um, and I... Uh, was uh, I got uh, involved in this group as a PhD student, and I'm still involved now. And I think that that community has really enriched my experiences too. So that that's been a positive of that. I guess I would also acknowledge that I I think my experiences are helpful because I think it gives me some appreciation for some of the additional challenges felt by other unrepresented groups that I think face even more um, challenges or more severe underrepresentation. And so I'm kind of grateful to have had um, some of these experiences and to have been able to reflect on them to better understand those challenges. That's a really positive way of looking at it. And I, I'm glad um, you've had a positive experience as well. <laughs> but I can also imagine, um, yeah, being on a ship with people of a different gender and being the one of the few um, of your, your gender would be a little disconcerting at times. <laughs> yeah. And when you're young, it can be very intimidating. Like it adds, you know, it's always hard to be young um, in some ways. And uh, I think it does add to the challenges of that. And I, I guess I would call out that I think field work in particular is one of those environments that are, is, can be very challenging in terms of the power relationships and, and, and um, you know, the, the environment's very insular. And, and so it is a place where we have to be like extra aware and alert that, that we are, um, uh, yeah, being welcoming to everyone, I guess. Uh, now, you seem to be very open and welcoming. Uh, do you feel like physical oceanography as a whole is an, an open and welcoming field or is it a little more insular and cliquey? Hmm. 
yeah, that's interesting. I think a bit of both. I think, um, I think compared to my experiences, say in physics, uh, or in aeronautical engineering, oceanography tends to be more interdisciplinary because the nature of the questions that we ask need to have interdisciplinary perspectives. Um, and I think too, because it is a bit maybe a newer field, a little less cutthroat kind of feeling. And so it's, I think, relative to my experiences in those other fields, I would say it's very welcoming. But I would also say that, you know, I think some of the kind of sink or swim mentality, you got to be smart enough to be here or you're not, or you should go home kind of thinking does, does sometimes boil to the surface in groups of physical oceanographers. And it's something that I... I feel like, yeah, kind of tuned into. And so that's something that, yeah, we have. Well, it's unfortunate, but I did enjoy that pun, sink or swim. (laughs) 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 So you don't have rumbles between the Atlantic oceanographers and the uh, Arctic oceanographers and the Pacific oceanographers. (laughs) No, I don't think so. Yeah, that's a good question. No, I don't think so. Because I think, again, this interdis- the need to be interdisciplinary, the need to recognize the interconnectedness of all these things, I think maybe promotes that. Yeah, yeah. There is a, maybe an interesting example comes from the turbulent ocean turbulence community. And so measuring ocean turbulence is very challenging because the signal is very small and, and the scales of the that we're trying to measure are very small. And so... There is, and again, the methods, we haven't been doing it for very long, so we're still exploring the best ways to change, for example, these voltages into measurements of what we think ocean turbulence is. And so because, yeah, because we're still, I, I don't know, maturing, I guess, there, there are, you know, camps, I guess, about the right way to do things in terms of um, measurement taking and measurement processing. And I think that that definitely exists in ocean turbulence right now. I wouldn't say it's aggressive, but there are definitely still, we haven't, we're still debating healthily most of the time about the best ways to do things. And people definitely believe that this way is better than that way still. And so, you know, you have to understand that landscape. I think it help, it helps to understand that landscape and maybe see it for what it is and then navigate appropriately. So there's a bit of turbulence in the ocean turbulence community. There is. There's a little turbulence in the turbulence measuring. Yeah, yeah, community. <laughs> uh, speaking of turbulence, uh, the, this year has been quite turbulent for everyone in every community. Um, I'm curious how COVID-19 impacted your work or if it impacted your work at all, and if you've been able to do any work um, while we've all been working from home. Yeah, so so yes, COVID-19 has impacted me like every almost everybody else, I would say. Um, the specific impacts have been, so there's been field work impacts for sure. Um, so we had work planned in the Arctic Ocean, summer of 2020, uh, as well as on the BC Central Coast. And two things happened with those things that have some silver linings, actually. So um, with the work on the BC Coast, we were planning to send the glider teams up and to mount the summer glider things that, uh, as usual. Um, and so instead, we accelerated basically the transition of making our operations a bit more uh, autonomous. So we trained people who work can live at the field station. We didn't go there ourselves, but we trained other people to deploy the gliders um, 
and work with them. And that accelerated kind of our desire to um, empower these other people to run the program, I guess. Um, and so that was positive. And the gliders are, uh, a lot of ships didn't go out on their normal monitoring cruises uh, last summer. And so the gliders turned out to be a pretty valuable data, provided a pretty valuable data set in the summer of uh, 2020 as a consequence. And so, you know, where there was lots of celebration about the u- utility of these autonomous vehicles at a time when people couldn't go on ships. So like that was there's some positives of that. Uh, what happened in the Arctic, again, we had plans. Uh, we run a, a, a reoccurring uh, sampling program in Jones Sound in collaboration with an Inuit community up there. Um, and this was supposed to be year three. Last summer was year three of the operations. Uh, again, we were planning to go. We did not go. Um, but again, there were some positive impacts in that we, um, with collaboration with the community, we did some of our work by shipping some of our instruments uh, to uh, the community and uh, members of the community who had been working with us in the past uh, used their own uh, boats and used these instruments to collect a stripped down data set, but, uh, but still uh, to continue our, our monitoring uh, process. And again, that's really kind of accelerated the, the long-term goal of empowering these communities to do their own monitoring um, of the systems that they're interested in. So, so that, again, you know, it was a lot of... Um, yeah, unanticipated effort, I guess I would say. Um, but there were some positives that came out. By the way, um, I've heard from so many other uh, researchers that they noticed big changes when um, humanity j- just kind of stayed at home for a, a little bit. Um, did you, and some really weird ones too, ones that you wouldn't expect. Did you notice anything different with the the flow of the ocean or... Yeah, that's interesting. So nothing specific, I would say, in our work. I think we're not measuring on scales that would let us really answer that question. Um, But there has been, uh, you know, yeah, it's uh, it's not really my area. Like there has been um, discussions about changes to, say, the CO2 uptake by the ocean. Are there changes in the CO2 concentration in the atmosphere associated with kind of the slowdown of um, emissions and these kind of things? I think a lot of that is actually saying that the slowdown isn't as as great as we might imagine, given how much our lifestyles apparently like felt like they changed. Um, so I think you know people are still thinking about those questions on bigger scales. I think I'm not not yet sure what the answer is. Well, you've made oceanography sound really exciting. Um, I'm curious, what kind of background uh, or courses or experience would you recommend for someone who uh, is thinking of following in your footsteps? Yeah, so that's a great question. So I did make the comment about how often oceanographers do not start as oceanographers. They start as physicists or chemists or biologists. And I guess in my, people have different opinions, but my opinion is that it's um, very important to get a really solid kind of foundational training in, in, in the foundational sciences of interest. So in my case, I feel like it's very helpful to get a really strong grounding in physics and mathematics um, before starting to learn and apply those um, um, foundational principles to understanding the ocean. So that's one recommendation. And I think another recommendation I would have for aspiring physical oceanographers of tomorrow is Uh, increasingly, we're sort of having this data revolution in in oceanography, satellites and these autonomous 
uh, platforms uh, are giving us a lot, 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 lot more data than we had before. The, the models, the numerical models that we use to like model the ocean are also becoming much more complex um, and sophisticated. And so increasingly kind of computer skills, programming, data science, data wrangling skills, these are all, we're not in the past, like in maybe a generation ago, we're not super important to physical oceanography when we had really limited data sets, but are becoming increasingly important. And I think that that trajectory will continue. And um, what do you consider to have been the most important course that you took in your studies? Hmm. Most important. Or the most influential. Yeah, again, yeah, so those are different, right? It was important for me to learn physics. It was important for me to learn calculus, all these things. But influential, that's different. I think uh, I remember sitting in, uh, and it's probably related to observational oceanography in particular. Uh, as a first-year graduate student, I had an introduction to observational oceanography class. And I was blown away by what the observationalists could do. And the the example in particular was um, a professor who had been really instrumental actually in getting the kind of earth absorbed, uh, observing satellites up there in the late seventies. He came and taught us about um, measurements of sea surface topography. So sea surface height from space. And he talked about the whole history of that, but you know, they put these satellites up there they measure to centimeter accuracy variations in the large-scale sea surface topography from which you can infer the large-scale currents. And we, sh you know, you can make a map of, um, of, the, of a snapshot because these satellites are kind of measuring the whole globe in kind of one snapshot uh, of the large-scale ocean circulation. And it just blew me away that these things were up there measuring like centimeter scale variations on the global scale and like producing these beautiful maps of the ocean circulation that made so much sense and like matched, you know, how we understand how it works. I was like, yeah, I was amazed. So it's probably that class where I was like, wow, this is really cool. Wow, that, that is really inspiring. <laughs> And I'm sure it's even more sophisticated today. <laughs> Did you have anyone who was inspiring you as you're doing your studies? I know that um, grad school isn't uh, the easiest of experiences. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Who inspired me? I've, I guess I would recognize that there have been many people that have been very important and inspirational and have supported me. And so there are many people you could talk about. I guess uh, one particular inspiration inspirational figure that I think about a lot now and my current kind of mid-career stage is I had the opportunity as a postdoc to work with someone uh, called uh, Sir Brian Hoskins. So he is so distinguished that he's a knighted scientist. And he is a very, very famous atmospheric dynamicist who came up with lots of very important fundamental ideas about atmospheric science uh, and atmospheric dynamics. But I um, encountered him at a time in his later in his career where um, he, uh, I think, had kind of um, committed himself to playing a bigger role in the discussions around climate change and its implications and kind of um, mounting a societal response to it. And so he left his uh, position as a professor at the University of Reading and, and moved to this very newly founded Grantham Institute for Climate Change, and he served as the director. And I, uh, I worked with him about very dynamical mathematical things far away from climate change policy and these kind of things. But I remember being very... Mm, 
very uh, impacted by watching him kind of balance these two roles uh, in terms of being a, a fundamental scientist as he was trained uh, and making contributions that were important to the field, but then at the same time engaging with kind of a bigger picture societal question at a time, you know, this was now 10 years ago, so like, you know, sort of earlier on in this story. And um, I found it very inspirational that he had kind of made that, taken that on and was doing it while balancing other things as well. Although that totally ties into um, the way that you study the ocean. Uh, you take that holistic perspective and you look at everything that's going on. Um, and so he's just taken it to another uh, dimension uh, and is looking at it from a societal perspective as well, not just the, uh, the natural environment. Um, I can see his inspiration coming through in you. <laughs> Um, now, you're very inspiring, um, and you mentioned that you do have some students, uh, some grad students. Um, how many do you have right now? Ooh, uh, so we, well, we lost two graduated last year, so we're down. I have uh, two master's students and a PhD student at the moment, and then two postdocs in our group. And um, how do you choose them? What are you looking for in your grad students? Again, I feel like one learns <laughs> in their first year. Like that's a very difficult uh, thing to answer. And so I'm still figuring perhaps that out. I think a few things are important. Uh, I think uh, showing some kind of motivation and inspiration is a really important piece. So um, people who reach out and show curiosity and show enthusiasm for ideas. That's a really important ingredient to assess that that's there. I think that that is an important piece that you need to be have to be successful in doing a PhD and also making the whole experience um, a more pleasurable one for everyone. So that piece is really important. So I'm very um, excited when really excited and motivated and kind of informed people reach out to me and ask interesting questions and stuff. That's a, a really real plus in my mind. And then the second piece is this foundational knowledge. Like, so, you know, a really strong background in physics and, and mathematics and, um, you know, computer literacy, however you want to define that. I think um, it are really the kind of the building blocks that you need to, to do the important research in this field. And so that, um, I think that those having those blocks before starting your PhD uh, is an important piece. That makes total sense. <laughs> now you mentioned that you're kind of mid-career um, earlier. Uh, so looking to the end of your career, what would you like to be your legacy or what would you like to have written on your career's tombstone when you retire? Yeah. So that's also a moving target, I've decided, as I've moved <laughs> from early. I feel like I've recently transitioned from early career. You're an early career researcher for a long time in academia. It's very kind that way. And so um, I feel like my my aspirations in that sense are also kind of evolving as I get older. I would say that 10 years ago, I would have been much uh, quick. I would be quick to say, like, make really important discoveries, as you say, in, in, in ocean turbulence, right? Understand the sheer instability that generates the overturning, like very specific and technical things and, and those contributions. And I don't know if it's age or my position at UBC or many things that have kind of changed me a little bit, but I I still think those things are very important. And I know lots of people who spend their whole careers motivated um, 
motivated by those things. And I think that, that I think that that's wonderful and important. But increasingly, I, uh, I, I do, maybe this is what happens to you when you get old, think about the, what you're leaving behind. And, and really what we leave behind is all our impact on other people who pick up and carry on this work. And so I think a lot more about training my direct, like graduate students and trainees uh, in ways to make important contributions. And I also think about the, ed, the teaching piece, like as, as in my role as a university pr professor and teaching climate change science at this time in human history to a range of different people at UBC increasingly to me feels like a really important thing to be doing. And, um, and so increasingly, I think also about that piece of my legacy and kind of, you know, that inspiration piece. Like if I, through my work, I have this opportunity to kind of excite people and inspire people about the earth system because it is fantastic and wonderful and amazing and important. And so if I can kind of communicate that to people, to motivate them, to think about environmental stewardship in a different way, that is also, I think, worthwhile. And you can totally uh, hear the uh, maturity in that response, um, the, the initial uh, desire to make a big discovery versus uh, the more holistic um, uh, goals. <laughs> now, you mentioned that your own personal uh, approach has changed, but um, and, and the field change has changed as well. Uh, one thing I've noticed is that every single field seems to be changing at lightning speed. Uh, and the field that a person enters is very rarely the same field when they retire. Uh, so looking at physical oceanography, what kinds of changes do you see coming down the pipe? And um, what, kinds of, what advice would you have for young people who are entering into the field so that they can um, uh, anticipate those changes? Sure. So I feel like we have talked a little bit about these themes of change, and I think they will continue. So I think um, one thing that's going to become increasingly important is like understanding the technology we need to make these observations. So we now, through autonomous platforms, have the opportunity to do a lot more observation, but we need the sensors that measure the properties accurately and robustly and with low power consumption. And so there's like, you know, for I think a really great example is understanding we would like to measure uh, like the pH of seawater to understand ocean acidification type issues on the gliders. But the right now, the, the, the sensor technology for these PCO2, partial CO2 pressure um, measurements is still evolving, right? So we need developments in the sensor technology themselves, but also oceanographers who under, can kind of speak to the people who make the sensors and understand what we're measuring and, and what that means and what the limitations are and um, yeah, how to use that data appropriately. So there's like a technolo technological thing that I think is going to become really important in the next 10, 20 years. And then there's a dealing with the data kind of thing that's coming, you know, that's new as we have more data. So how to take this space-time data and do useful things with it and feed it into the models so that the models can use it appropriately and that kind of thing. So there's a lot of kind of data, big data type things that I think are going to be important. Um, and then, you know, increasingly, and I think it will continue, I think oceanography is going to become a bit more 
practical and like societal serving, right? So like we're going to need to play roles in understanding, for example, ocean acidification on the BC coast so that we can understand and manage, um, you know, ecosystems and uh, uh fisheries and, and these kind of things uh, in the context of the of, of a changing climate and changing oceans. And so it's going to become more, op- I think it's going to become kind of more operational and societal serving than it has been in the past where uh, it was maybe more kind of blue sky science. That's great. Well, thanks, Stephanie. Um, you've been really fun to chat with today. Um, and those are all my questions. Is there anything you want to say before I let you go? Anything I didn't cover? No, not really. I guess I would just, I guess, a bit of a plug to people out there who are thinking about potential roles in science. You know, I um, I guess a bit of a call to action. I, I feel like there's a lot of really smart, gifted scientists and engineers, physical scientists out there who maybe haven't seen earth sciences on their radar um, as they navigate through physics and engineering. But I really think that interface of taking physical and quantitative sciences and applying them to earth science problems and issues. First of all, I think it's very rich. I think there's lots of really wonderful uh, problems to be solved, but also really important problems. And so um, just to yeah, put that on people's radar, the future computer scientists out there and engineers might also want to think about the earth sciences and how they could deploy their talents there. Thanks, Stephanie, and have a great day. You too. Thank you, Daniel. It's really great to talk to you. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen on Spotify Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.